Okay, we've seen the Apostle Paul went up to Jerusalem in the book of Acts. <clears throat> Here, in the background, he was <clears throat> captured and uh, delivered into the hands of the Gentiles, the Romans, and he was taken to Caesarea, which is the coastal city of Caesarea off the Mediterranean. It is not Caesarea Philippi, but Caesarea of the coastland. And he was put there in Herod's judgment hall, awaiting to appear before Felix. That brings us to chapter 24. Now, what brought this all about is the Apostle Paul went up to Jerusalem. The Jerusalem Jews there did not believe that Paul was still following the ways of God that he was speaking against the law of Moses. They were saying that he was speaking against the temple and the customs of the Jews, which was not accurate. Amen? He was not speaking against the temple. He was not speaking against the law. He was not speaking against circumcision. He was clearly teaching that all of that had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So it wasn't like the law of Moses was against the New Covenant. All of that, the New Covenant, was revealed in the Old Covenant. Okay, so he wasn't speaking against these things. He was showing them or teaching uh, that they had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But having said that, uh, there were some who thought that Paul was telling the Jews as he traveled that he was preaching the same message to the Jews that he was preaching to the Gentiles. Now, he told the Gentiles it was not necessary to be circumcised. Okay? And that's biblical. But when it came to the Jewish believers, many of the Jewish believers in Jesus Christ wanted to continue to circumcise their children and follow the customs of the Jews according to the Mosaic Law. And Paul did not tell them that they could not do that. But he was accused of telling the Jews not to practice those customs. Are you all here with me? So James met with the Apostle Paul and discussed this with him and and they're going to try to work this out. Uh, James and Paul on the same page doctrinally did not believe that circumcision saved you nor the keeping of the law of Moses saved you, but they did believe that both Gentiles and Jews should keep the moral law of God. Are you understanding what I'm telling you today? So James and Paul were doctrinally the same. When it came to the Gentiles, they saw saw it the same way. Gentiles didn't need to be circumcised or keep the customs of the Jews. Amen? Amen. But when it came to the Jews, they allowed them to practice circumcision, allowed them to keep the custom of the Jews or the law of Moses. Amen. Are y'all with me? As Jewish believers. So they were on the same page. I think, though, that there was a huge problem as a result of everything that was trying to happen there, though, because Paul eventually was taken captive, not necessarily because James was wrong or because Paul was wrong. It was for evangelism purposes that he was becoming as a Jew to them, and he ended up in prison. So I want to clarify that before I go on any further. I I sort of feel like I gave James a bad rap last week, and that's why I'm telling you this. Um, James was a great man of God. And uh, I just want you to understand that Paul and James were on the same page. Amen. Are y'all with me today? Uh, amen. But Jew, uh, James' focus is more on the Jewish believer. Paul was focused on, on the Gentile believer. And so this was the difference in the message to the Gentiles and, and then versus the Jews. So 
In case you don't understand where I was going last week, that is the situation. Now, we find him a captive. Uh, he's delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. Before I go on, is there any questions? Do you understand what I just said? Everybody understand what I just said? And I'll read real fast. I'll try to cover that again as we get into this because Paul's going to testify before these rulers. He's going to testify before Felix. He's going to testify before Festus and Agrippa. Okay? And he's going to speak on this subject again that I've just covered. So if you look at 24 verse 1, And after five days, Ananias the high priest descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullius who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called for Tertullius, began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. We accept it always, in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness, notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. And clemency is his reasonable uh, decisions. Verse 5, For we have found this man a pestilent fellow, and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, who also hath gone about to profane the temple, that is incorrect, whom we took and would have judged according to our law, but the chief captain Lysias came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now. We ask your blessing to be upon the reading of your holy word. We ask God that you would anoint me to bring this word to this people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Alright, Ananias the high priest of Jerusalem has made the journey to Caesarea up in the area of the Mediterranean Sea, the border town, about 70 miles from Jerusalem. So this shows you the hatred of uh, the Jewish leader here, Ananias, that he would take the time to travel 70 miles to try to get the Apostle Paul indicted before Felix. Are you all with me so far? So the Bible tells us that after five days, this Ananias, the high priest, descends with the elders. Not all of the Sanhedrin court went with him because we had seen last week how the Apostle Paul divided the Pharisees and the scribes as he was presented before them concerning the resurrection. So not all of the Sanhedrin went with Ananias here up to Caesarea. The Bible tells us Ananias, the high priest, with the elders... And the Bible says, and with a certain orator named Tertullius. Tertullius was a Roman uh, attorney. Okay? Because they were going into a Roman court. When I say they, I'm talking about Ananias. I'm talking about the elders here, the Sanhedrin court. Because they were going into a Roman court, they were not very familiar with the court of Rome and how that operated. So they had a man, a attorney, Tertullius by name, 
who was an orator. He had the ability to speak and, and he's going to lay an indictment against the Apostle Paul. He's very uh, familiar with the courts of Rome. So they had this man, Tertullius, the attorney of Rome, or that is familiar with Roman process. The Bible tells us, who informed the governor against who? Paul. The Bible says in verse 2, And when he was called forth, Tertullius began to accuse him. So we have this Roman attorney accusing the Apostle Paul, a very capable orator. He begins to accuse Paul saying this, number one, he's going to first flatter Felix. Okay? Before he accuses Paul, he's going to put a real heavy flattery on this Roman leader, Felix. Now, Felix ruled from 52 to 60 A.D. That's how you can determine time frames in the book of Acts by these various political leaders. Okay? So let me say again, he was a governor, a procurator, like Pontius Pilate was in the past. He ruled from 52 to 60 A.D. Okay? So as a procurator of the uh, Roman government, uh, governor here, he is the one that is going to be uh, seated here in this judgment procedure. Now, Tertullius, the attorney, begins to flatter him, and I don't have time, I would like to, uh, talk about all these various words that he used because there's a story in every word that he uses here. But anyway, he begins to flatter this man Felix. Now, Felix, let me tell you a little bit about Felix. Felix was a freed slave who had forced himself into power by corruption and by force. That's how he got into power. He was a freed slave. He was a very, very cruel governor. Very cruel and very licentious. His name, Felix, means happy or pleasure. He was constantly seeking pleasure. He trampled underfoot righteousness to be able to go after whatever pleasure his flesh wanted. Okay? So we have a freed slave that's sitting upon the throne and there's nothing more dangerous than a freed slave sitting upon a throne. He was very cruel, okay, because he didn't know how to rule. Alright? So you got a freed slave sitting upon a throne, which creates a very cruel situation. He doesn't know how to rule. Because as I said, he forced himself into power. Very ungodly, very promiscuous, very immoral, very cruel, but he is the Roman official set by the Roman Empire to be the procurator over uh, this area of the world. So now, giving you a little understanding about him, he is married to a woman by the name of Drusilla. We'll talk about her in a little bit. But here's the picture. We have Paul brought in before this governor, Felix, and we have the attorney, a Roman attorney, representing Ananias the high priest and the Sanhedrin court against the Apostle Paul. Now here's what Tertullius says to Felix, verse 2, when he was called forth, Tertullius began to accuse him, saying, seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness. So number one, he says to Felix, it's because of you that we enjoy great quietness. You keep down insurrection, you keep down rebellion, and therefore we have quietness in the land. 
And then he goes on to say, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. By your providence, your ability to see into the future things that might happen. That has to do with providence or providential. So he's saying that this man has the ability to look into the future and, and uh, providentially take care of the nation. Verse 3, he said, We accepted always and in all places most noble Felix. That was a lie. He was not noble, but it was a term of respect that he used. And then he goes on and says, again, verse 3, We accepted always in all places most noble Felix with all thankfulness. Verse 4, Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. He says your, your clemency, he recognizes clemency as being, what that means is reasonable decisions. That this man declared reasonable decisions or clemency. Verse 5, For we have found this man. Now, he begins to indict the Apostle Paul having flattered Felix. Here's the indictment of the Apostle Paul. Verse 5, We have found this man a pestilent fellow. Number 1. They say that the Apostle Paul is a pestilent fellow. What that means is he's like a man who's a plague. He's a plague. He's spreading disease everywhere he goes. He's spreading his pestilence. He's spreading his plague. He's spreading his disease. He's like somebody that's got a disease. He's <clears throat> This man is making Paul look like a very base character. A very immoral character of the basest sort. He's trying to make Paul look like a lowlife. Okay? Who's spreading disease and pestilence and plagues everywhere he goes. You with me so far? All right, then the Bible says, number two, he is a mover of sedition among the Jews throughout all the world. Sedition, or he is an insurrectionist. And that everywhere he goes, he raises up huge crowds of fury and frenzy. People go crazy when he comes around. He creates rebellion against the Roman government. That's sedition. That is against the law. It is against the Roman law for anybody to go and create a rebellion against the Roman government or a huge uproar of people and because the Romans always were promoting peace in their land. So for anybody to create an insurrection, an uprising or rebellion was against the law of Rome. So this man, this Roman attorney, is saying that he is a disease carrier. He's saying that the Apostle Paul is creating rebellion and insurrection and uprisings all over the world among the Jews. That is a lie. The Apostle Paul was not involved in sedition. He was not involved in creating... Now, he preached the gospel, but he's not an insurrectionist. He's not trying to bring rebellion to the Roman government. So he hasn't broken a law concerning Rome. He is not a seditionist. But this is the accusation that he brings. Now, maybe this is going back to Ephesus. We had a large group of people, a big mob frenzy that took place there. They're fixing to tear him to pieces, you know. And I preached that to you in Acts the 19th chapter. And other places where he went, there just all kinds of problems always came because as he preached the gospel, the people got mad. 
but he was not the one that was creating insurrection or rebellion or sedition. All right, so that's the next charge that was made against him. Okay, you with me so far? And then, number three, he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's the ringleader, he's the head of a sect of people known as the Nazarenes. They follow Jesus the Nazarene, right? Okay. Wrong. In what way? This is not a sect. Now, he is a follower of the Nazarene Jesus Christ, but the church or Christianity is not a sect. So let me explain to you what a sect is. It comes from the word heresy. So this attorney is saying he's a ringleader of the heresy known as the Nazarenes or the sect of people known as the Nazarenes. The charge is that he is a sect within Judaism. You understand what I'm trying to show you here? The word heresy or sect means to choose. And then it secondarily means division. Okay? So the attorney is saying that he is a leader of people who have chosen, alright, to be a part or to be a sect of, or maybe this would help you, a denomination within, within Judaism. You understand? But the word sect or heresy, to choose to divide within Judaism is not a proper term. Because the Apostle Paul did not look at Christianity as a sect or a part of Judaism. He looked at Christianity as the fulfillment of Judaism. Not as a part of Judaism, but as the fulfillment of the whole of Judaism. Does that make sense to you? Okay. And Paul's going to call it the way. It's not a sect. It is the way of God. It is not something that people choose for themselves to become a part of. Alright? It is the way. It is God's way, not a denomination. It is not a sect that you choose and want to be a part of. It is God's way. And he will talk about that in just a moment. But anyway, this is the, I believe, the third, uh, third indictment or accusation against the Apostle Paul that he is a ringleader of the heresy of the Nazarenes. Verse 6, Who also hath gone about to profane the temple. Fourth accusation is that he has profaned the temple. <clears throat> that was <clears throat> the reason why the frenzy took place in Jerusalem because some of the Jews of Ephesus claimed that they saw the Apostle Paul take one of the Gentiles into the area of the temple that was outlawed to the Gentiles. Therefore, profaning the temple. He did not do that. That is a false accusation. He did not profane the temple. In fact, he never spoke against the temple. Do you understand that? He, he didn't know that the temple was, was uh, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, that Jesus was the, the true uh, temple, but he did not speak against the temple. That was the charge that was levied against even Stephen. They stoned Stephen to death. Stephen didn't speak against the temple. They claimed that he did. No, they did not denigrate the temple. They were saying that the, the purpose of the temple had risen up into purpose and glory. 
So they raised the temple and its purpose up into fulfillment. They didn't put it down. They didn't denigrate it. They said they brought it up into its fulfillment. Does that make sense to you? So this was also a false accusation that the apostle Paul profaned the temple. Whom we took and would have judged according to our law. We were fixing to judge him, but we had this inner fear this chief captain named Lysias came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands. Are y'all with me so far? Verse 8, commanding his accusers to come unto thee, and that is to Felix, by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. Alright? And the Jews also assented, saying that these things are so. Verse 10. Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. So we've got this high-powered orator. We've got this attorney representing Ananias and the Sanhedrin courts. He's familiar with the Roman court system. He's brought his accusations in legal form before Felix. And then here we have the Apostle Paul. He has no representation. He has no attorney. But he does have Jesus Christ. So he's going to have to speak for himself. God's going to speak through him. But he has no physical man to represent him. All he's got is God. Well, that's that's enough. And we'll see that. Okay, the verse 10 of the Bible says, Then Paul, after that the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, we're talking about from 52 to 60 A.D., I do the more cheerfully answer for myself, because that thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. Okay, so he's given the time frame here. He said, I went to Jerusalem to worship, And they neither found me in the temple, disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues, nor in the city. Alright, you with me so far? He he said, I did not create an insurrection. He said, I'm not involved in sedition. He said, I'm not creating a rebellion. So he's answering that accusation. Verse 13. Neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. Where are the people who have accused him? Where are those Ephesian Jews that started this whole thing in the beginning? They're nowhere to be found. They should have gone up. He's saying basically, letting them know, where's my accusers? Okay? One of his defenses, his accusers are not there in that courtroom that day. Alright? And that is true. Nor could they prove the things that were being spoken against him. Verse 14, But this I confess unto thee, that after the way, say the way, Paul is now to- showing him that it is not a sect of Judaism. It is not a part of Judaism that is in division. It is the way of God. Correct? Say the way. I really think that probably Christianity today, true Christianity ought to be called the way. I'll tell you why. Because for the most part, Christianity today is not biblical. Okay? Most of what is called Christianity today, you could not find in the Bible. So I think it'd be better uh, for true Christianity to be known as the way 
so that we wouldn't be, you know, lumped up in the same category as the rest of the people who claim to be Christians. You understand? Because we're not a sect. We're not a denomination. We're a part of the way of God. Say amen. So Paul is basically letting them know this is not a sect. This is the way of God. This is God's way. This is not something that a man just chooses to be a part of because he wants to be a part of it. It is not because a woman chooses to be a part of it, wants to be a part of it. It is the way of God. Are y'all with me? So I will say the same thing about the true church of the living God. It is not something you choose to be a part of. Some people have this idea, and what am I saying? Let me explain myself. They have this idea, well, I'm going to choose the place where I want to worship, you know. I want to choose my denomination. I want to pick... You know, and choose. Really, what you what you need to do is get in the way of God. You need to find out the truth, find out the way of God, and go with that. It's not like choosing the church of your choice kind of a thing. It's about finding the ways of God, finding the truth, not being a part of a sect or a, a something that you chose or that you separated yourself to do. It's the way of God. Do you hear what I'm telling you? Amen. So this is what he's trying to get across to them here. Verse 14, But this I confess to you that after the way, say the way, which they call heresy, they call it a sect. They call it something that you choose and you divide into. He said that's what they call it. They call it heresy. He said after the way they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, Believing all things which are written in the what? Law and prophets. You see that? He said, I believe everything that was written in the law and the prophets. Everything that Paul has been preaching was written in the law of Moses. Moses said that he would die and that he would rise again. The prophets said the same thing. That the Messiah would die and rise again. Amen. Amen. So everything that Paul is preaching is lining up with the law of Moses and the prophets. He's not going against the law of Moses. He's not speaking against the law of Moses. He's not going against the prophets of God. He's not speaking against the prophets of God. He's saying everything he's preaching lines up with that Old Testament. You understand? It lines up with Moses. It lines up with the prophets. Not some new religion he started. It's not some new denomination he's come up with. This is rooted in the Scripture. Say praise the Lord. Did you catch that? It's very important. That's why I began the way I began the lesson this morning. Okay? Paul was accused of things. In Acts 21.21, he's accused of going around telling the Jews not to circumcise their children. Paul never told the Jews not to circumcise their children. This is what they said Paul said. In fact, the Apostle Paul took Titus and circumcised him. Made him a Jew. Why? Not for salvation, but for evangelism purposes. Amen? So it was, it was a, under grace, it was okay for them to circumcise them, their children as long as they did not see that as a part of salvation. As long as they did not see as keeping the law of Moses as a part of salvation. You catch what I'm saying here? So, 
That had to be cleared up. And that's why James approached the Apostle Paul. we got to clear this up. Because there's some people saying that you're going around and telling the Jews and, and throughout the world not to circumcise their children. Well, man, that's the heart of their faith. That was rooted in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, right? It's not for the Jews, uh, for the Gentiles to do, but if the Jews want to do that under grace, not for salvation, but for practice purposes, it's okay. Do you understand? So he was being falsely accused of going against the law and against the prophets, etc. I hope this is bringing clarity to you. Amen. So he didn't, you know, he didn't profane the temple. He wasn't speaking against the temple. He understand that it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Verse 15. And have hope toward who? God. Which they themselves also allow that there shall be a what? Resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. All you gotta do is go to the prophet Daniel and Daniel chapter 12 and Daniel talks about the resurrection of the just and the unjust. So this is not some new doctrine the Apostle Paul has come up with. It's rooted in the Scripture. Amen. Do you understand? Amen. In fact, in 23 and verse 6, go back over there. When he was standing before the Sanhedrin court there, but when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducee and the other Pharisee, he cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of the Pharisee a son of a Pharisee, of the hope, and what? Resurrection of the dead am I called into question. And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, with the mul- uh, and the multitude was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisee confessed both. Did you catch that? What did he just say in that verse? He said, I am a Pharisee. The son of a Pharisee. Did you catch that? He, at that moment, as a born-again believer, the Apostle Paul still claims to be a Pharisee. But he is a true Pharisee. He is a spiritual Pharisee. Which means he believes in the resurrection that it is an actual event. The Pharisees said they believed in the resurrection. They had an idea of the resurrection, but probably didn't really believe it. But the Apostle Paul didn't just say he believed in the resurrection. The Apostle Paul believed that it was an actual event that it happened. You understand? So Paul is not, he's more than a Pharisee. Don't misunderstand me. He's more than a Pharisee, but he is a true spiritual Pharisee because he believes the resurrection that he was an actual event. Unlike the Pharisees who said they believed in it. Does that make sense? I want you to catch this. It's very, very important for you to see these things, okay? So when we go back over to verse 15 of Acts 24. Remember, he's standing before Felix. He said, And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, and there shall be a what? A resurrection of the dead, both of the unjust, the just and unjust. He said, even in the heart of Judaism, the heart of Phariseistic belief, the belief of the Pharisees, in the heart of Judaism, the faith of the Jewish people, 
He's letting them know there's always been the hope of the resurrection. Does that make sense? This is not some new thing. It is prophesied in the Old Testament, the resurrection of the dead. Say praise the Lord. So he's a true spiritual Pharisee because he believes it. Alright? Okay. Boy, it's quiet in here. I'm not asking you to believe me again. I'm just asking you to hear what I've got to say. Verse 15. I'm going to read to you again. Have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the, un- of the just and unjust. He said even the Pharisees believe that. Those that don't believe in Jesus Christ. Even that sect of Pharisees, that sect of Judaism called Pharisee, in contrast to that sect known as the Sadducees, even they believe in the resurrection of the dead. Okay, verse 16. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. He said, because I know there's going to be the resurrection of the dead. He said, my whole life, he said, I live careful. He said, I'm careful not to violate my conscience in anything I do, anything I say, any thought I have, any word I say. Now, how many of y'all are in that, that in touch with the reality of the resurrection of the dead and the judgment that follows? That you live so careful that your conscience is void of offense toward God. That you will not offend God in any way. With anything you say, anything you do, or anything you think. Because you know at some point you will stand before God Almighty. And because you know you will stand before God Almighty, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, someday, your whole life is lived with that in mind. That I cannot violate my conscience when it comes to God. I cannot offend God. You with me so far? So the Apostle Paul was in touch that someday he would stand before the resurrected Lord. And because of this resurrected Lord who will judge the world, he lived a life which was void of offense toward God. Do you see what he's saying here? And toward men. Because I know there's going to be a resur- I know there's a resurrection. Jesus is the resurrected Lord and I will be resurrected. He said, I'm very careful not to offend God or men in any way. Because I know someday I'm going to stand before God Almighty. You see, if we realize, we recognize as a people that someday each one of us is going to stand before the Lord, we'll be careful about what we think, about what we say, and about what we do, how we live. That we do not offend God and that we do not offend people. Praise the Lord. Now, the the preaching of the gospel is going to offend people. You understand what I'm telling you? But that doesn't mean you're trying to offend them. Preaching of the Word of God will offend them. But that doesn't mean you're trying to offend them. Because you know you're going to stand before God someday. So, he's sharing this with Felix. Now, let that sink into you just a little bit. How do you live your life? Do you live your life with that in mind that someday you'll stand before the resurrected Lord? And so you're very, very careful about what you do with your life, how you live, what you say, what you look at, the way you talk, the way you think, the actions in your life, because someday all that's going to come into the light. Let me just say this. That will remove hypocrisy out of your life. 
You will not come to church one way and live in the world another. Not when you know that. Because you know it's not just pastor, it's God. <laughs> and pastor's really nothing. It's God that you're concerned about. Okay, say amen to that. So, amen. God sees everything. He's the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul is sharing this. Verse 17, Now after many years I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. This is the reason why I came to Jerusalem. I was going to bring alms. Uh, I'm going to bring this offering from the Gentile believers to the Jewish believers there in Jerusalem to help them. Correct? Been involved in collecting that offering for them. And the Bible says not only alms to his nation, but also offerings to God. So he's going to bring alms to the nation to help the nation. But he's going to go to the temple and he's going to bring his offerings to God. Alright? He believed in bringing his offerings to God. He wasn't a hypocrite. Praise the Lord. Now we'll tell you this, that the table and the tithe are still uh, carried over from the Old Testament into the New Testament. The table and the tithe. So when you come to the Lord's house, you're going to take the Lord's Supper and you're going to bring your tithe. The table and the tithe are carried over. It's a part of a Melchizedek priesthood. Okay? And why do you do that? Because of a man? No. You do that because you know it's in the Word of God and someday you'll stand before the Lord. So you will not lie about that. And you will not be a hypocrite about that. Correct? So he's brought his alms for the nation. He's brought his offerings that would go to the temple in his worship unto the Lord. Verse 18. Whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult. So those certain Jews from Ephesus, we had already seen them before. They saw Paul in the temple to fulfilling his vow, the Nazarite vow. And he's going to bring his offerings to that temple, etc. And they create a huge ruckus saying that he had taken a Gentile into the precincts of the temple. Okay? So he's speaking about this. And he said, I didn't create a tumult. I didn't create a sedition. I didn't create an insurrection. Verse 19. Who ought to have been here before thee and object if they had ought against me? He said, where are my accusers? If I'm wrong, where are they? Isn't it amazing how people are? They'll bring an accusation against you, okay? But they won't come and face you. They won't stand with you when they accuse you. Man, I tell you what, I'd love to have the opportunity to have all the people that have accused me or even this church or you come into this house and stand before this church with me and bring their accusations. Okay? Are y'all hearing me today? And that's what Paul is saying right here. He said, where are my accusers? Well, it's pretty obvious. They didn't have any ground to stand on. They were false accusers. Okay? Don't have the proof to bring. They suppose that Paul did that. That's what the Scripture says. They suppose, the Ephesian Jews suppose that Paul took a Gentile into those precincts of the temple that were forbidden. Supposed it and created a huge storm and ruckus over the fact. And because they had no proof, they're not going to be in court that day. They're false accusers. Okay, say praise the Lord. <coughs> but someday, you know, even though they're not standing there, they'll, they'll stand before God on Judgment Day. 
and these accusations they've lived against the Apostle Paul, they will give an account for everything they said. It's recorded in the book of Acts. If it's recorded in the book of Acts, it's recorded in heaven. And they will give an account before God on Judgment Day. Okay, so verse 20, Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me, any wrong, if I'm a wrongdoer, if I'm an evildoer, he said, while I stood before the council, you with me? I'm going to read verse 19 and 20 again. Who ought to have been here before thee and object if they had ought against me? Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council. He said, all right, we've got Ananias and we've got part of the Sanhedrin court here and let them prove my wrongdoing. They don't have the ability to prove Paul is a wrongdoer either. Why aren't they standing up? Why aren't they speaking against the Apostle Paul? They can't prove anything that they're saying or believing. Okay, verse 21, Except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the what? The resurrection of the dead. I am called into question by you this day. He said, because I preach that Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is resurrected from the dead. The resurrected Lord is the center. Let me just say this. He's not just giving His defense here in this court. He's giving His testimony. He said, the reason I'm standing here is because I preach the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the center of the gospel message. It is not that we just preach His death, but we also preach His resurrection. It's two pillars of this arch. If you just preach His death, okay, and that's all you have is one pillar in the arch, it'll collapse. All you have on your hand is a martyr. But if you preach His death and His resurrection, you have two pillars of the gospel that create the arch, and you have to have both of them. So the Apostle Paul and all the preachers of the gospel never preached the crucifixion of Jesus without preaching His resurrection as well. Nor did Jesus, when He spoke in the Gospels, when He spoke of His death, He always spoke of His resurrection. He never spoke of His death without speaking of His resurrection. So the Apostle Paul is standing before them and he said, I'm called in question because he said, I preach the resurrection of the dead. He said, this is the prophets. The prophets believe that. Say, praise the Lord. And the law of Moses. All right. Verse 22. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that what? That way. Again, that way. I wonder how Felix knew about this way. The Bible said he had more perfect knowledge of that way. Now he's a Roman official, a freeborn slave who's forced himself into power. How did he know about the way? How did he know about the gospel? Who told him about it? Well, if you study history, and this history is outside of biblical history, it's called, I don't know why they call it, they call it profane history. It is believed that Simon Magus, remember the one that got in trouble in the book of Acts, Simon Magus, after his judgment, okay, that Simon Magus made his way to the court of Felix and he shared with Felix the way or the gospel. That's how he knew about the way according to what's called profane history. So anyway, I don't know if that's true or not, but 
this man Felix, this Roman official, governor, he's familiar with the way. The Apostle Paul says, I know that uh, you understand this knowledge. You have this knowledge. Say praise the Lord. Verse 22, And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, he deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of the matter. He commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come down to him. So now what we have here is we have Felix, and this is the way Felix always operated. He just adjourned. Okay? The way he does it. There's no decision made in his court. He just leaves it hanging. And he's going to leave it hanging for two years. He just adjourns the court. That's the way he is. He's a vacillating procrastinator. Just adjourn the court. That way he doesn't have to, to uh, put a decision on it, you know, and make the Jews mad over in Jerusalem. That's the way he operates. He's a procrastinator. He's always putting off decision. He's vacillating constantly back and forth, back and forth. That's the way this man operates. Okay? Now, we also will find out there's all an ulterior motive in his adjourning of the court at this point is that he wants money from the Apostle Paul. As a Roman official in this court, it is against the law for him to take a bribe. Okay? Now, the Roman law was a good law but it had corrupt leaders in it. So this man would be breaking Roman law as a corrupt leader to take a bribe from the Apostle Paul. But one of the reasons why he doesn't pass judgment on the Apostle Paul at that moment is he's going to call him from time to time hoping that Paul will give him some money to bribe him. And then he can make a decision to let him go. So an ulterior motive is money. Okay, he's covetous. So let's read on a little bit. The Bible says uh, the Apostle Paul is given some clemency here. He's given a reasonable judgment, but it's not really a true judgment or verdict. It's just an adjournment of the court, and he's allowed to go in and you know basically go back to that as we saw in verse thirty-five of chapter twenty-three. He's able to go back into Herod's judgment hall there. And he's able basically to be fed, to be nurtured, to be cared for. Uh, he has time to rest. And this will go on for two years. Now as you look at it, you're saying, well, why would God allow this to happen to the Apostle Paul? I believe God has given him two years to rest. Because he's fixing to face the Roman emperor. He's fixing to go before Nero. Before he goes before Nero, he is going to have about two years to rest Luke will be with him from time to time. Aristarchus will be with him from time to time. And Philip will be with him from time to time. I also will tell you this. I'm not saying it's fact. But I will tell you that at this time, this is probably where the Apostle Paul had the book of Hebrews written. Because he will basically, what he's told Felix here about what he believed, in the Law and the Prophets, how this was in the Law of the Prophets, in the book of Hebrews, that will be basically what he said to Felix, that Jesus Christ fulfilled the Law and the Prophets, that we are now New Covenant days, and that the Law and the Prophets pointed to this time. So, <clears throat> I believe that 
And, and I'm not just jumping at that. I'm not just reaching into the air for that. As scholars believe that this is when the book of Hebrews was written. But it was Luke who wrote it under the instruction of the Apostle Paul. Paul gave him what to write during that two-year time. Okay, So he's resting, possibly written, written the book of Hebrews at this time, declaring, basically writing an, a commentary on the Old Testament. How the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That is what the book of Hebrews is all about. Verse 24, And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a what? A Jewish. He sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Say praise the Lord. Okay, so now what we have is we have Felix and we have Drusilla. Drusilla is his wife, but they are in adultery. Let me tell you about Drusilla. Okay, his wife. Drusilla is the beautiful daughter of Agrippa I. Agrippa I was the man in Acts chapter 12 that had James beheaded. Okay, y'all with me? James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. Agrippa I is the one who had him beheaded. This woman, Drusilla, is that king's beautiful daughter. Drusilla was married to a, a man who was a king in Syria. And um, Felix seduced her away from her husband so and married her. That is why they're living in adultery. Okay? Drusilla, the beautiful daughter of Agrippa I who killed James, left her husband for Felix. And Drusilla is a part Jew. Because her daddy Agrippa I was her father. He was an Idumean slash Jew. He was a half Jew and half Esau. Drusilla has got Edomite blood in her. And she has Jewish blood in her. And she is in adultery with Felix, who he has married, but he stole her from her husband. So, we're not talking about a real good person here. We're talking about a daughter of a man who killed James. We're talking about a daughter of a great uncle who beheaded John. We're talking about a uh, you know great uh, granddaughter of a king who tried to kill Jesus. All these Agrippas, these or these Herods, were in her family lineage. All right, so she wasn't a good woman. She wants to hear, though, the Apostle Paul concerning the faith of Jesus Christ. Alright? So Felix goes and gives the Apostle Paul and he gives a private audience to this little apostolic preacher. Okay? I will tell you that this is the grace of God for these two adulterers. It is the grace of God. Because what the Apostle Paul is going to say to them is going to give them an opportunity to be saved. 
Okay? So Drusilla, the beautiful daughter of Agrippa I, who killed James in Acts chapter 12, is the wife of Felix. The Bible says she was a Jewish. He sent for Paul and heard him concerning the what? The faith in Christ. So they wanted to hear about the faith in Christ. Now, let me just tell you this. It's very important for you um, that when you marry, that you have a legal biblical right to do that. Because at some point, someday, you can slip around, you can play around, you can act like you're an idiot, and you don't know what you're doing, but someday you'll stand before God Almighty. So you better make sure that your marriages are biblical. Alright? This man and this woman was in adultery, even though they were husband and they were wife. Had no biblical grounds to be married. Say praise the Lord. But they want to hear of faith in Christ, so they bring the Apostle Paul out from Herod's judgment hall. The Bible says in verse 25, and as he reasoned of righteousness, temperance and judgment to come. The Apostle Paul... Now, keep in mind what we have here. we got a little apostolic preacher who's in chains. Here he comes walking into the room. He's in chains. Felix is a governor. He's a Roman official. Drusilla is by his side, and they're not chained, and they're free. But really, Paul's free, and they're bound. Because they're bound to sin. Okay? Now hold on to that. Because Paul is going to turn the tables on him. He's going to preach to him of righteous, righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. It takes a lot of God for a man to preach his convictions in chains. It takes a lot of God for a man to preach his convictions under the roof of another man and he's enchained in front of that man. How many of us could go into the presence of a Roman official like this, chained and bound under his roof, and still preach our convictions? It takes a lot of God. You understand what I'm telling you? You might find yourself in situations that it would be very easy for you to compromise. Do you realize the Apostle Paul, all he had to do was compromise and he would have been instantly set free? But because he refused to compromise, he had enough God to not compromise and go free. He had enough God to stand there and preach under another man's roof while he's in chains. That takes a lot of God. And he had a lot of God. You understand what I'm telling you? How many times you in a situation, all you have to do is compromise. And as far as the world is concerned, something good will happen to you. But instead, you stay true to your convictions. And the Apostle Paul, although he was chained underneath the roof of another man, sat there and preached his convictions to that man when he could have compromised and gone free. So think about that. It helps me, and I hope it helps you. So he reasoned of what? Righteousness. Well, that's exactly what this man and this woman need to hear, is righteousness. Because Felix, we'll just call him happy. Because that's what his name is. Happy. Just call him happy or pleasure seeker. That's what he was all about. He was just about whatever made him happy, whatever gave him pleasure. He trampled righteousness underfoot 
He's in adultery with another man's wife here. And so the Apostle Paul, standing there chained, preaches to him righteousness, which he knows nothing about. As far as personally, he is not a righteous man. So I would believe that the Apostle Paul preached to him about the righteousness that is in the law. Which number one, uh, uh, Felix, you have not kept the law of God. You're guilty. The law of God condemns you. You are guilty. Okay? Having preached to him the righteousness that is in the law, then after telling him and showing him he's come short of that righteousness, then he talked about righteousness that can come only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. You understand? The righteousness that can only come through Jesus Christ. They needed to hear that because obviously they weren't living righteous. And then the second thing the Bible says he preached to them was temperance, self-control. Well, it was obvious by looking at them they had no self-control. They were out of control. Completely given to sin. Licentious, okay? And then he preaches the judgment to come. Say the judgment to come. That someday, Felix, you will stand before that resurrected Jesus Christ. Someday, this resurrected Lord that I've been preaching, you will stand before Him. And when He judges you, if you are lost, you will be cast into the lake of fire. Someday, Felix, you will come before the Lord Jesus Christ at the great white throne judgment. And if you are not, if you have not sent your sins to Jesus Christ to be put under the blood, then your sins will follow you into the judgment and you will be cast into the lake of fire. Can you imagine that? This little man having that kind of conviction in God. He could speak of righteousness which they were not living and temperance, self-control which they were not a part about and then preach the judgment that was going to come on them because of their sin. That someday they will stand before the great white throne of God Almighty. And the Bible says that when the Apostle Paul preached that word, I'm telling you, this was the grace of God. The grace of God is trying to reach these two. Okay? The Scripture says Felix began to tremble as the Apostle Paul preached. Fear got a hold of that man. Paul turned the tables that day. When he preached that word, he said in the, in the epistles, he said the word of God's not bound. He said, you put me in chains, but the word of God is not bound. And even though he was standing there in chains physically, the word of God was not bound. And he looked and he declared the truth to that man. And when he did, he turned the tables. And he really showed the man that day that was free is the one that was bound. And the one that was bound was free. And that Word of God hit Felix right in the heart. It brought conviction on him and fear gripped that man. I believe that he and Drusilla were, were just, they were very, very close to becoming Christians, becoming believers in Jesus Christ when they got through hearing this man preach. But what do you think he did? Instead of instantly coming to the Lord right there, same old Felix, Put it off to another day. Procrastinator Felix. Vacillating Felix. And you know what happened? For two years, he left Paul in, in those chains. You hearing with me? You hearing with me? 
And for two years. The Bible says, I'm going to send you away and when I have a more convenient season, Paul, we'll bring you back and we'll listen to you preach again when we have a more convenient season. No. You're trembling right now under the Word of God. There are, there are a lot of people that come to church, the Word of God goes forth, they never tremble. At least Felix trembled when the Word went forth. When I have a more convenient season, then I'll send for you. We have no record of Felix ever becoming a believer. Because that procrastination, that putting off till tomorrow what he should have taken care of today while he was under conviction. That two year period of time. You know what happened to that man? He became hardened. You know what happens to people who say tomorrow or a more convenient season? My time. You know what happens to them? When they say that and they put it off and the God is on them and conviction's on them. You know what Felix did? Felix put that fear behind him. It had a hold of him just for a moment. But then he shrugged it off. He removed it from him. And because he did that, it hardened him. That's what happens to people. They can come to church. They can hear the Word of God. Some of them tremble. Some of them don't. But the ones that do tremble, what do they do? If they put it off till tomorrow, what have they done? They put the fear behind them. They put the conviction behind them, the fear of God behind them, and say, well, another time. What happens to a person like that is they become harder and harder and harder and harder. It's called gospel hardening. That's why it's so dangerous. If we come to hear the Word of the Lord and we take it so nonchalantly and so carefree and it's no big deal, uh, really, we should be trembling in the presence of God. And knowing there's a judgment that all of us are going to face someday. And, and you know, to put it off or to put off getting right with the Lord in your life will make you harder every day. Your heart will get hard. And you'll get so gospel hardened that at some point, no preacher, I don't care who he is, how anointed he is, how much of the Word of God he knows, there will come a point that no preacher can reach you because you have said no to God one too many times. And you refuse to move when the Spirit of God is moving upon you. You are in a very, very dangerous place. So as he reasoned righteous temperance and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. How many people today take that approach? More convenient time. It just don't, it, it really, it just doesn't fit with what I want to do with my life right now. See, I want to, I want to live the way I want to live and when I want to, then yeah, maybe in the future. That was this man's problem. He was a procrastinator. He was a vacillator. He was heavily into licentious activity. His life was cruel. He was a man that put off what he should take care of today. And it hardened him. Verse 26. He hoped also that money should be given him of Paul that he might lose him where of he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. So yeah, he'd call him now from time to time from Herod's Judgment Hall and talk to Paul. 
The Bible doesn't say he ever became a believer. Drusilla and Felix experienced the grace of God when Paul preached judgment to him and righteousness and temperance. That was the grace of God trying to reach that man, trying to reach Drusilla, trying to save him. Now when he calls Paul, the conviction's gone, the fear's gone, and now all he wants is, give me some money. And if you give me some money, I'll let you go free. That's the kind of man Felix was. Verse 27. But after two years, Orchius Festus came into Felix's room. This is now we're moving all the way to 60 to 62 A.D. We don't know a lot about Festus, but now Festus has replaced Felix because Felix has gone back to Rome. And Festus, as I said, we don't know a lot about him, but Festus is now in the position of the governor or the procurator there in Caesarea. The Scripture tells us that Felix leaves the situation unfinished. He treats the Apostle Paul like a piece of junk that you'd leave behind. As he leaves leaves Caesarea and his governorship there and goes back to Rome, he just leaves Paul over there in in the judgment hall of Herod like Paul's a piece of junk. No decision... Just a perpetual adjournment. I just adjourn it. I don't. I refuse to pass judgment on it, and I'll let somebody else take care of it. I'll let somebody else deal with the decision. And so Festus comes on the scene, and now he's the Roman procurator or the governor of that area, and he leaves Paul in the hands of Festus. The scripture says, "Now when Festus was coming to the province, verse chapter twenty-five, verse one, three days, he ascended from Caesarea to Jerusalem." Then the high priest and the chief Jews informed him against Paul and besought him and desired favor against him that he would send for him to Jerusalem, laying wait in the way to kill him. But Festus answered that Paul should be kept at Caesarea and that he himself would depart shortly thither. Let them therefore, said he, which among you are able to go down with me and accuse this man if there be any wickedness in him. And when he had tarried among them more than ten days, he went down unto Caesarea And the next day, sitting on the judgment seat, commanded Paul to be brought. And when he was come, the Jews, which came down from Jerusalem, stood round about, laid many and grievous complaints against Paul, which they could not prove. So now we see Festus, he goes to Jerusalem, and uh, the leadership of Jerusalem there wants Festus to turn Paul over to them but there was a plot to kill him. There was a plot to assassinate Paul as he journeyed from Caesarea to Jerusalem. They had no intentions of putting this man on trial. They were going to lynch him as soon as they possibly could. That's how much they hated him. And so Festus refuses to release the Apostle Paul. Jewish leaders come down from Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul is brought before Festus. And the Scripture then tells us in verse 8, while he answered for himself, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. Here he is again. But this again is not his defense. This is his testimony. Okay? He said, I have not, neither against the law of the Jews, neither against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I offended anything at all. So they haven't spoken against the law of God, spoken against the temple, haven't offended the things of Caesar. I have, I'm not in sedition. This is his testimony. 
to Festus. Verse 9. But Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? See, he's a politician, a consummate politician. He's just going to turn them over to the Jews. Are you willing to go, Paul, up there to Jerusalem and be tried there? No, because the Apostle Paul knows they're going to try to kill him. And so he appeals to Caesar. Okay, he appeals to Caesar. Which he could, as a Roman citizen, he could appeal to Caesar. Verse nine, uh, verse 10. Then said Paul, I stand at what? Caesar's judgment seat. Where I ought to be judged. To the Jews have I done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. For if I be an offender of, or have committed anything worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if there be none of these things whereof these accuse me, no man may deliver me unto them. I appeal unto Caesar. He used a legal term right there. I appeal to Caesar. He knew as a Roman citizen right there that he could appeal to Caesar. That he would go before Nero and stand before Nero and let Nero judge his case. Basically, he's like going to the Supreme Court. Okay? So he appeals to Caesar, who at this time is Nero. Verse 11. For if I be an offender... Now, I read that. Okay, verse 12. Then Festus, when he had conferred with the council, answered, Hast thou appealed unto Caesar? Under Caesar shalt thou go. Alright? Now it's out of his hands. It's out of Festus' hands. The Apostle Paul has used his Roman citizenship rights to appeal to Caesar. It's out of his hands now. Festus cannot pass a judgment on the Apostle Paul. Good or bad. Alright? Because the appeal is in place. So now Festus has to take some time to write a letter to Caesar, to Nero, and explain to Nero, Caesar, uh, the situation concerning the Apostle Paul. And that's going to take him a little time. So he doesn't immediately send Paul to Rome. He's got to take some time to write the letter out. And while he's doing that, Agrippa II, the son of Agrippa I, he's a king, shows up there in Caesarea. Alright? Are y'all with me so far? <clears throat> Verse 13, And after certain days, King Agrippa and Ber- uh, your Bible, it looks like almost like Bernice, or you might say Bernice, or Bernice, but really it's Berenike. Berenike. Okay? Now, so we have Agrippa and we have Berenike. Now, Berenike is the sister of Drusilla, Felix's wife. Which means Bernike is the daughter of Agrippa I who killed James. You with me? Drusilla, we saw Drusilla. She's the daughter of Agrippa I. And so is Bernike, the daughter of Agrippa I. They are sisters. And catch this, Agrippa II in this passage is her brother then. If Agrippa I, the one who killed James, is Bernike's dad, Agrippa II is her brother because he's the son of Agrippa I. And so we have Bernike and Agrippa II. This is the sad part about it. Brother and sister living in 
immorality, if you can imagine that. Committing sin and immorality with each other that even the historian says were unnameable. You can read about that in Josephus. That he's having relations with his own sister. You're not talking about very upright people. You're talking about some real rascals. You're talking about some real problems. Okay? That, that he could be living with his own sister, Berenike, and in, in uh, immoral relationships. So these two show up there in Caesarea, and, and he's a king, King Agrippa. He's half Jew, half Idumean, half just like his father was, just like his father before him was, just like Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus. You understand? We got the whole line of Herods here. Herod who tried to kill Jesus, Herod who beheaded John the Baptist, Herod who killed James was the father 16 years before this event of Herod Agrippa II here. He's half Jew and he's half Idumean. Just a whole history of anti-Christ, anti-God people. And Berenike is in that family lineage because she's his sister. So they're sitting there together and they've come up to talk to Festus. Verse 14, And when they had been there many days, Festus declared Paul's case or cause unto the king, saying, There is a certain man left in bonds by Felix. And by the way, Agrippa II here is the final Herodian king. He's it. Okay? And so Felix, you know, they're probably talking, you know, like most people would about various subjects, various things during the day. And they just happen to go, Felix happens to go in the direction of the Apostle Paul, or Festus does. says, I've got a man here that was left to me by Felix. His name's Paul. He said, I'd like to talk to you about Paul. And uh, so... The Bible says, he goes on, he says in verse 15, about whom when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews informed me, desiring to have judgment against him. To whom I answered, it is not the manner of the Romans to deliver any man to die before that he which is accused have the accusers face to face and have license to answer for himself according to the crime laid against him. That's the Roman law. That's the law of the United States of America. We operate like in, under the Roman law. Okay? Then a man has to write a right to a jury, you know, a trial, to face his accusers. That America's like that. Okay? So, anyway, <clears throat> in verse 17, Therefore, when they were come thither, without any delay on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat, commanded the man to be brought forth. All right? Uh, and let me back up. Verse 16. To whom I answered, it is not the matter of the Romans to deliver any man to die before that he which is accused have the accusers face to face and have license to answer for himself concerning the crime laid against him. Therefore, when they were come hither without any delay on the morrow, I sat on the judgment seat and commanded the man to be brought forth against whom the accusers stood up. They brought none accusation of such things as I supposed, but had certain questions against him of their own religion. Okay? Superstition, religion. And of one Jesus, which was dead, whom Paul affirmed to be alive. So Jesus is the, the center of the whole thing. His death, burial, and resurrection is the whole center of this, this situation, you know. 
In verse 20, because I doubted of, the, of such manner of questions, I asked him whether he would go to Jerusalem and there be judged of these matters. But when Paul had appealed to be reserved unto hearing of who? Augustus. Augustus is a title for emperors that has to do with worship. Augustus was not the name of an emperor. Augustus was a title of worship. They worshiped the emperors as God. They called them Augustus. Certain emperors allowed the title Caesar. And they would allow people to call them Lord. Okay? So people would come and say, Caesar is Lord. And the Christians would say, no, Caesar's not Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord. And like Polycarp, all Polycarp had to do, a disciple of John later in history, was simply say, Caesar is Lord. And he would have been released from being burned at the stake. But instead of saying, Caesar is Lord, Polycarp said, Jesus is Lord, and they burned him at the stake. That's all he had to say, was Caesar is Lord. But Augustus was a term of worship. And Caesar became also a term of lordship. Nero is the emperor at this time. He allowed himself to be called Caesar or Lord. And he allowed himself to be worshipped as God. And so these are the terms here. But when Paul had appealed to be reserved unto the hearing of Augustus, I commanded him to be kept till I might send him to Caesar, which was the title of Nero at the time. Then Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear the man myself tomorrow, and said he that thou shalt hear him, and on tomorrow said he thou shalt hear him. Okay, Agrippa wants to hear him, right? And so Festus says, tomorrow you'll hear him. So he arranges this. Verse 23, And on the morrow, when Agrippa was come, and who? Berenike, his sister that he's living with. <laughs> Sitting there on the throne. The Bible says you've got the chief captains that are there. That means there are men that are over a thousand soldiers. I want you to get the picture here. I'm not trying to bore you. I'm just trying to give you the text. And You've got King Agrippa in his royal apparel. You've got Berenike, his sister, who he's living with in her royal apparel. You've got the crown royal sitting on his head. The regalia is there. The crown, the signia of royalty. You've got men who are over a thousand soldiers. They're called the chief captain. You've got principal men of the city. That means men that are extremely, extremely important that have been gathered for this meeting. So this is the picture. You've got pomp. You've got fantasia. That's pomp. There's going to be a show here today. It's going to be an entertainment thing. It's going to be a show thing. So here they all gather, the kings and the governor Festus and the chief captains over a thousand and the principal men of the city. Here they are. It's a royal regalia, a huge pomp entertainment of Fantasia. And there they are all sitting there and they're going to bring this little Jew out from the prison house in bonds. 
Can you imagine? Earthly pomp. Earthly glory. The stage is set. As it said, verse 24, King Agrippa and all men which are present with us, you see this man about whom all the multitude of the Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here crying that he ought not to live any longer. But when I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death and that he, he himself hath appealed to Augustus, I have determined to send him, of whom I have no certain thing to write unto my Lord. He's talking about Nero, Caesar. Wherefore I have brought him forth before you, and specially before thee, O King Agrippa, that after examination had I might have somewhat to write. I know what to write Nero. For it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner and not with all to signify the crimes laid against him. Chapter 26. And I come to a close in this chapter. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Now remember, all this royal pomp, this little apostle chain there standing before them. A spectacle. Entertainment for them. That's all it's about. He's standing there before King Agrippa and he says in verse 2, as he's stretching forth the hand, he's beckoning like an orator would, you know, and he begins to stretch forth the hand, even though he was in prison, he could still lift his hands. And Verse 2, he said, I think myself happy. <laughs> I think myself happy. Well, you can understand why, because the Apostle Paul, even though chained, is not bound. He's free from sin. And the one that's sitting in front of him in his royal apparel and his crowns and all this pomp and all this show all around him, you know, these principal men and captains of thousands, all of them don't have chains on them. They have their beautiful apparel on. It's a huge show. They're the ones that are bound. Because they're bound to sin. It's all the way you see things. You see, you have to have a proper perspective. And so Paul says, I think myself happy. And that's what all of us have to do sometimes. I mean, I mean if, you're, if you're chained for the sake of Jesus Christ, and you know, just thank yourself happy. I thank myself happy. Is he amazing? He's amazing, isn't he? All of these things he's gone through, people... Have it in for him. They want to kill him. What would you do if you knew somebody was going to try to kill you today for your faith in Jesus Christ? And all these things he's having to deal with, and he's going before Felix and Festus, and now Festus is going to make a show out of this, and Agrippa and Berenike's there, and all this stuff's going on, and all this stuff he's got to put up with. But he, he refuses to let it get him down. So I think myself happy. King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews. And I want you to know, you heard the apostle preach a very powerful message throughout the book of Acts. But when you look at this message in Acts 26, it's one of the greatest messages the apostles ever preached. And he's in chains. There's some people, they can't preach even in a perfect environment. 
They, they can't even preach in church, much less somebody else, I don't know if somebody else's roof chained and a prisoner. This man can preach. It doesn't matter what the environment is. He didn't have to, he's going to turn this situation into a church service. That's why some people are, you know, some people they can't preach in church and some people they can preach anywhere. They can preach they can turn a court situation into a church service. And that's what the Apostle Paul did. It was not a perfect environment. It was not a perfect situation by any means. You know, he doesn't have a glass pulpit he's standing behind with his Bible on the sacred desk. He's chained. I think sometimes when we start going through things, we need to just look at ourselves and say, get over it. Get over it. The reason, let me tell you the reason, well, honestly, I'm not going to get on to you this morning, but, and I'm trying not to make practical application because that's when I get in trouble. I'm just try to preach the Bible to you. But I really think the reason why a lot of times we even go to church and it's a perfect environment to worship God, we're not happy because there's sin in our life. Because we know we're doing some things or not doing some things that we should be doing or shouldn't be doing. And we come to the house of God and we don't have power and we, you know, we don't have joy because we're not right with the Lord. But this man was right with God. And because he was right with God, he said, I think myself happy. Didn't matter the situation, didn't matter the circumstances that he found himself in. He knew he was right with God and he knew he was free. He was free. Why is it, how is it that we could come to church and not have the joy of the Lord and, and come to church and not be happy? When he wasn't in a perfect environment, but yet he said, I think myself happy. Yeah. Maybe you need to go run out and get you a cigarette. Make yourself happy. Go get you a drink. Aren't you glad that you didn't get into all of that in this New Year's Eve thing? You know, that you didn't, you didn't need all that stuff, you know, to make you happy. You wake up the next day, headache, sick, puking, throwing up in the toilet. and What a life. Those are the happy days, huh? Those are good, you call those the good old days. Happy days. Yeah, no. But happy as bondage. Misery. Praise the Lord. Are you happy this morning? If you're not, thank yourself happy. Grab a hold of your mind and tell your mind, be happy. You know Jesus Christ. And then get right. Get right. Amen. If we'll get right with the Lord, we'll be happy. Verse 3, especially because I know you're an expert, Agrippa. Now, he wasn't flattering him. You remember Felix, he's a flattering old... Uh, I mean, the uh, Tur- was it what was his name Tertullius? Tertullius. He's flattering old Felix, you know. But this Paul is not flattering Agrippa. Christians don't flatter people. You know, flattery is as you tell something. Uh, you know, well you, well, you tell them something because you have an agenda. 
You want to get something out of them. Okay? So you say something good about them, you know, because you have an agenda. You, you want something, them to do something for you. And the Apostle Paul, when he makes this statement, he's not flattering Agrippa so he can get anything from Agrippa. He can care less about, you know, what Agrippa does with him. Because he's already appealed to Caesar anyway. This is not a court case. Agrippa can't judge him. Festus can't judge him. And he knows it. It's just an entertainment spectacle. So, but the Apostle Paul looks forward to the fact that he gets to, to share his testimony with Agrippa. And he says, Agrippa, I know you're an expert in these things. You know, you know about the ways of the Jewish religion. You know it because Agrippa is over the temple. Agrippa is in charge of the temple. Agrippa is in charge of guarding the temple. Agrippa is in charge of appointing the high priest of the temple. Agrippa is in charge of overseeing the garments of the temple. So he knows about all of these things. That's why Paul says you're an expert. He's in charge of it. Okay? So he goes, verse 3, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews, wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. Now, if he's such an expert, he should be living it, but he's not. He's living in a uh, sensual... He's living with his sister. You messed up, man. He's not living it. So he starts out, the Apostle Paul starts out from his... His life gives his testimony about his life, his upbringing, his training, etc. Let's look at it. it. Said my manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among my own nation at Jerusalem, known known of all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning. If they would testify that after the most straightest sect, after the straightest heresy or sect of religion, I lived a Pharisee. So you can ask anybody. He said, I lived the strictest, straightest line that was available in Jerusalem. I was set apart to God. I was zealous for the law. I believed in the resurrection of the dead. Okay? He said, I was a part of the strictest sect in Jerusalem. You with me so far? Everybody knew it. The most straightest sect of our religion. I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers. Unto which promise our twelve tribes instantly, say twelve tribes. Paul didn't know anything about lost tribes. Unto which promise our twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night. Hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I'm accused of the Jews. What hope? The resurrection of the dead. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? He's the only one that can. Why do you think it's incredible that God can raise the dead? God can, but nobody else can. I've already thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He said there was a time that I opposed Him. My mind was against Him. My mind was antagonistic against Jesus Christ. You understand? Some people like that. They first come to church, the first time they walk in the door, man, they already got their defenses up. They've already made up their mind. They're against this. And that's the way the Apostle Paul was. In his mind, he was against 
the way. He was against the Nazarene. He was against the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand? In his mind, he was antagonistic. Against the name of Jesus. Which thing I also did in Jerusalem, verse 10, many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. He said, I know what it's like. I used to be just like these people. They're trying to kill me. I had the same kind of zeal that they had. You know. Verse 11, I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. He talks about his conversion. Whereupon as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midnight, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining around about me and them which journeyed with me. And when they were fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest, but rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee. To do what? So he's sending, so he's speaking of his conversion, how he met the Lord on the, on the way, or really in the way. He met the way, in the way, or on the way. And the Lord appears to him, light shining, you know, who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. And so now he's going to be converted. The one who is a persecutor will now become the persecuted. And he said, God called him into the work that he was in. Verse 18, to open what? Their eyes, to, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith. That is in me. Did you see that? The responsibility of man to turn from darkness to light, from power of Satan unto God. That's the responsibility of man. My responsibility is to turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. That's my responsibility. The responsibility of all mankind to do those two things. And the responsibility of God will be to forgive the sin and to give you an inheritance among them which are what? Set apart by faith, sanctified by faith that is in Him. That's God's responsibility. You turn from darkness to light, you turn from the power of Satan to God, that's your responsibility. God will forgive you and give you inheritance. Verse 19, Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. I was not disobedient. Basically, Agrippa, what would you do? You experienced the same thing I did. What would you do? God called you to do this, and that's why He's doing it. What would you do? He said, I wasn't disobedient unto the heavenly vision. He immediately obeyed the Lord. He didn't partly obey Him. He didn't wait to obey Him. He immediately obeyed the Lord. 
Verse 20, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should what? Repent and turn to God, their responsibility, and do works worthy of repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me, having therefore obtained help of God. He said help of God, right? I told you, I talked about it last week. The supernaturalism behind naturalism. He said, God helped me. Well, it was a Roman captain that helped him. It was a nephew that helped him. You understand what I'm telling you? But he said God. He saw God behind it. God in disguise. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continued unto this day witnessing both to the small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come. It's not a new religion I'm starting. Said the Moses and the law and the prophets preached this, said this, declared this. He said, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm preaching the fulfillment of the promise in Jesus Christ. Not some new thing he came up with. The law of Moses and the prophets revealed it. He wasn't speaking against it. Misinterpreting. Verse 23, that Christ should suffer and that He should be first, that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as He thus spake for Himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, there art beside thyself much learning doth make thee, what? Mad. Amen. So you get the picture? Acts 25, 23 talks about all those people gathered there. The Apostle Paul standing there preaching to them. Testifying. Not defending himself. Not defending himself. But witnessing. Before kings. Just like God said. And all of a sudden, Festus, who was on the one hand, we got Berenike on one side of Agrippa, and then we got Festus on the other. He stands up in the middle of the whole process and said, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning doth make you mad. He's saying, your mind is full of wheels. And they're just spinning. And the more you talk, the more crazier you get. The more you talk, the more insane you become. You're a maniac, is basically what Festus says. You're caught up in mania. You're a maniac. You're mad. Much learning doth make you mad. Isn't that interesting? There's some people today that think that the Bible will make you go crazy. Go read the Bible and make you go crazy. Don't go to church, it'll make you go crazy. I had an uncle, he started moving <clears throat> even before I was in the church. This uncle I'm talking about, he's, he's passed on now. But at one time, my uncle, before I even knew about being filled with the Spirit, from what I understand, my uncle was moving in these things. And he stepped away from it. And I remember after we, after I had come into the truth and 
this was even after I was married, my uncle made a statement. He said, that made me crazy. See, his conclusion of Christianity was it'll make you go crazy. And he was extremely intellectual. Okay, he went to law school and everything else to be an attorney. Extremely intellectual. And he started getting in a church and the movings of the Spirit. His conclusion was it's about to make me go crazy. He left it. And he died out in an open field with nothing but a tent. Highly, extremely educated man. Okay? So if you're not careful, you get around people or maybe the enemy will come to you and tell you that Christianity is going to make you crazy or the church is going to make you crazy or the Word of God is going to make you crazy, you know. Maybe the devil comes to you and tells you, man, since you got in this, you're going nuts. Well, it's the first, thing, first time really I've ever heard of the Bible make you go crazy. I didn't know the Word of God would make you go crazy, did you? You're just crazy anyway. The Bible didn't make you crazy. You were crazy before you came. You are crazy before I preached to you. You just The Bible didn't make you crazy. You were a maniac before you came to church. I didn't turn you into one. Hallelujah. Maybe some people think when I'm preaching, that guy's crazy. No, I was crazy before I started preaching. Hallelujah. Yeah, this didn't make me crazy. I was crazy before I started preaching. It's not the Bible's fault if I'm crazy today. I was crazy before I ever started preaching the Word. Some of you... St- I'm not going to say it. This man, you know, it's really sad that Pessus stood up right in the middle of Paul's preaching here and interrupts him. Aren't you? Come on, somebody. You know what I'm saying today. I mean, you know, the Bible's not going to make you crazy. Going to church is not going to make you crazy. Hearing me preach might make you crazy. I'm messing with you. Not the Word of God, though. Interrupts the whole thing. Verse 24, As he thus spake himself, to said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. You're a, you're a maniac. Much learning doth make thee mad. You've lost your mind. Because all the letters you read, all the things you read, all the things you study, it's making you go crazy. But he said, I'm not mad. I'm not crazy. I don't have wheels going off in my head and spinning up in there. He said, I speak forth the words of truth and soberness. You look at me as a man that is unbalanced. Paul said, I'm not unbalanced in my mind. He said, I'm speaking to you words of truth. And it's sober-minded. Not a, not from an unbalanced mind, but an informed mind. See, Festus' conclusion was Paul was a madman, an unbalanced mind in him. But in truth, Paul was not unbalanced in mind. Paul 
was speaking the truth and Paul had an informed mind. See? And so, get ready, church. When you really start walking and living for the Lord and you start declaring the Word of God, people, some people are going to look at you and think, man, you're crazy. That church turned you into a nut. No. I have an informed mind now. And I appear to you as crazy. I appear to you as mad. I, and your friends will tell you you're crazy. And your friends will tell you you're insane. And your family will tell you you've lost it. Just look at it next time and say, no. I have an informed mind now. I didn't have an informed mind before. I'm not unbalanced. I'm not a maniac. I know what I'm doing. I have the truth and I have a balanced mind. Give the Lord praise in the house. You know what I'm telling you? you got a lot of friends that are coming around you that are just like Festus that will try to help you get out of this church. we got to help that man and that woman. we got to get them. we got to free them from that. You know. Man, they've lost it. You know. They're going to come and be your deliverers. No. You have an informed mind and a sober mind. Praise the Lord. I know what I'm doing. I know what's in the Bible. I'm doing what I'm doing because it's in the Word of God because God has called me to do it. Okay? Praise the Lord. You just tell him I was crazy before I got in the church. And... You know, there's some insane people who have not yet been committed. <laughs> you understand what I'm telling you? Praise the Lord. Man, who knows where I'd be today if Jesus Christ had not reached me, filled me with His Spirit, called me to preach, you know. Who knows? I'd, I, really, I think I know where I would be. I'd be in the grave. I'd be in the grave. If not in the grave, divorced. Life completely shattered. Destroyed. But the enemy will try to make the saint of God feel like he's lost and make the sinner man feel like he's called to preach. That's the way the devil works. Let me say it to you again. The devil will make the saint feel like they're lost and the sinner man feel like he's called to preach. That's the, devil. That's the way he works. So Festus is a tool of the enemy. He's standing up. You're crazy. You're a madman. You get the point. No. I'm speaking the words of truth and, uh, and soberness. Hallelujah. I got a balanced mind. I've got an informed mind. How many of you are thankful for a balanced mind and an informed mind? You, you know, you do realize where you find, uh, good horse sense, don't you? How many of y'all have good horse sense? You got good horse sense. You know where, you know where you find good horse sense? In a stable mind. I got good horse sense. I got a stable mind. See, one thing about it, you do not want to let the world pass a judgment on your walk with God. Because the world thinks you're crazy. Hallelujah. So when they stand up with a loud voice, you're mad. You're insane. Much learning. You're beside yourself. 
Much learning had made you mad. Thank you for telling me that. Now I know I'm on the right track. Because the world is always upside down concerning the things of Jesus Christ. If the world's for it, if all the world's for it, all the church world's for it, examine it. Because the, church, because the world is upside down when it comes to Jesus Christ. So if they pass a judgment on you like that, say thank you. Now I know I'm on the right track. I'm almost done. Verse 26. Now, okay, so he, his response to this accusation of Festus, now he focuses back on King Agrippa. Alright? He's trying to win this man to God. Verse 26. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely, for I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. He, he looks right at King Agrippa and he tells him, you know what this is about, King Agrippa. This thing wasn't done in a corner. This is not a secret. Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is not a secret. You know about it, King Agrippa. His life is not a secret. It wasn't done in the corner. You know about His life, King Agrippa. It's no secret. It wasn't done in the corner. You know what this is about. Are you all with me right now? Come on. The people that you rub shoulders with, you'd be surprised how much they know about Pentecost. How much they know about the faith that you walk in. You'd be surprised how many of them that you rub shoulders with that backslid out of Pentecost. They backslid out of Pentecost. They're in the world. It, it's not a secret to them. It's not a secret in Odessa, Texas, Midland, Texas what this church believes. You think it's a secret that what this church believes is a secret in this town? It's not. It's not a secret in this town. It's not a secret in Midland, Texas. There was a young person in, in my daughter's school that just now recently met my daughter. Okay? That knew about Tim Cohen coming here and speaking in this church. It's no secret. Wasn't done in a corner. You can't hide this. People know what you believe. They know. They, oh, yeah, praise the Lord. So you might as well believe it. You might as well live it because they know what to expect from you. And if you're not living that way, they're going to have a question in your mind as to why you're not living it. It's not a secret what you believe. Jesus' manner of life, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, baptism in Jesus' name, the infilling of the Holy Ghost, living a holy life. This is not a secret. The world knows about this. One man wrote about it. He took one man, I forget his name. I wish I would remember his name. I'll give him credit. He took 17 minutes and wrote a, a message right out of that one statement right there. It's, this thing wasn't done in a corner. And he tells there's no secret what God can do. What He's done for, for me, He can do for you. That's what Paul was telling Agrippa. It's no secret what God can do. What God has done for me, He can do for you. This thing wasn't done in a corner. 
We're not some kind of elite super saints. We're people who God has changed by His power. We're people who, who God has saved and delivered. It's no secret what God can do. What He's done for me, He can do for you. He can fill you with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, speaking with other tongues. He can cause you to walk in a holy life. No secret. Give God praise in the house. Verse 27, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. I know you believe the prophets. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian? Did you catch that? Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian? I don't really totally... Totally know the tone of voice, but it was probably sarcasm. You know, it's kind of like the little lady that I heard this preacher talk about. He was a tremendous soul winner. And he teach Bible studies, Bible studies, Bible studies, Bible studies. And he started teaching this family Bible study, you know. And day after Day after day, just faithful teaching the Bible study, you know. Uh, getting rid of the rocks out of, out of the soil and having to do all that work. It's not easy to win souls. He used Matthew 13, you know, the parable of the sower and how there's, there's the good soil, there's the stony ground, there's the thorns, there's the, what else? Wayside. He talked about how hard it is to win souls. You gotta get the rocks out of the, out of the, you know, soil and you've gotta plow the, the hard ground and, and just work, work, labor, labor, labor to win souls. Some people think it's easy to win souls. It takes a lot of work to win one soul. Anyway, he's preaching about that. And uh, he talked about this family. He just, I mean, this went on for, seemed like forever the Bible study, okay? And one day he shows up on the doorstep of this couple. And this little lady hiding behind her husband says, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to convert us. <laughs> you know, kind of cynical. You know, so Agrippa says, Almost persuadest, persuadest thou me to be a Christian? I know what you're up to, Paul. Trying to convert me, Paul. <laughs> it's hard to win souls, man. It takes work. It takes tears. It takes labor. It takes prayer. It takes persistence. It takes consistency to win souls. That's why there's not a lot of soul winners in the church. Because they give up too easy, too quick. Man, if they're not in the tank after you've taught them one Bible study, you're ready to give up on it. It's work, man. Almost persuadest thou me to be a Christian? You know, it's just a cynical sarcasm. Well, or maybe he was saying, you're not far from converting me, Paul. Maybe he was saying that. But either way you look at it, either way you want to translate it, almost doesn't get the job done. 
Amen. How many people you know almost got baptized in Jesus' name? How many people you know today almost got the Holy Ghost? Almost. We tell them, you almost got the Holy Ghost tonight. Almost. <coughs> the tragedy of almost. The tragedy of almost. How many of It's a tragic thing to be almost. There's a lot of people that are almost. Listen, you're either a believer or you're not. You can't be almost a believer. You can't be almost saved. You're either saved or you're not. Come on, somebody. The tragedy of almost. It'd be tragedy if I almost drank water but never drank water. It'd be a tragedy if I almost slept but never slept. There's no person farther away from God than a person who does not know the value of their soul or the value of time. When Agrippa said, Almost persuadest thou me to be a Christian? What a tragedy. He didn't know the value of his soul or the value of that moment. Almost. How many people on their way home in their cars almost made it home before they crashed and were killed? The tragedy of almost. And you hear the mom or the father at that funeral service make the statement, they almost made it home. The tragedy of almost. The reason why it's almost in so many people's lives is they don't understand the value of their soul or the value of time. Almost. Two little boys playing with a marble in Johannesburg, South Africa. Flipping the marble. They're on the ground. And a man walks up and he said, I'd like to buy that marble from you, young man. Little boy picked up the marble. And that man said, I'll give you $10 for that marble. And that little boy says, well, sure. And he sold that marble to that man for $10. And it ended up being one of the most valuable diamonds that was ever found in Johannesburg, South Africa. They didn't know the value. They didn't know the value of what they had. Agrippa, almost persuadest thou me to be a Christian? He didn't know the value of his soul. He didn't know the value of that moment. He was the Queen of England. Well, on her deathbed, on her deathbed, she said, I'll give every bit of my wealth away right now to be able to live one more day. See, when you get on your deathbed, it doesn't matter how much money you got. You'll be willing to give everything you got away 
you had one more day to get right with Jesus Christ. The tragedy of almost. How many people have come and gone from this church? Almost. I've got folders in that file cabinet. Folder after folder after folder of literally thousands of people who have come into this church over the last 16, 17 years. Thousands of them. Almost. Persuaded to be a Christian. It's a tragedy. We have to understand the value of your soul and the value of time. Today is the day of salvation. Because every day you put it off, the harder you become. Until you find yourself at the end of your life, almost. But almost is not going to put you in heaven. Almost is going to put you in hell. I was almost a believer. I went to church and I heard them preach about Jesus' name, baptism and the oneness of God and being filled with the Holy Ghost and heard them preach about getting born again. Walked out and said tomorrow, almost wasn't good enough. And almost is never good enough. That's why you and I, we have to take every moment. We have to take our opportunities when we have an opportunity to pray, when we have an opportunity to go to church, we have an opportunity to hear the Word of God, when we have an opportunity, we need to value that moment and value your soul. Because if you don't care for your soul, who else will? If you don't care about dying and going to hell, who else is going to care? If you don't care about being on fire, I almost got on fire. I almost got on fire. It's like drinking almost drinking water. You never drink it. It's like almost sleeping. You're never sleeping. Almost on fire is never on fire. Give me one more chance. Almost. I'm almost persuaded. I'm, you've almost persuaded me. You've almost converted me. The tragedy of almost. Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am except these bonds. We have a bound man that's free. And we have a free man, woman, Festus, and all the captains, and all this pomp and ceremony, and all this entertainment. And every one of them are bound by sin. The tables are turned. Someday the Apostle Paul will be standing beside Jesus Christ at the judgment seat and Agrippa and Berenike and Festus and all those captains of thousands and the principal men of that city will come before God, the great white throne judgment, and the tables will be turned. Those that were almost saved that had that opportunity to hear that preacher, one of the greatest preachers that have ever preached the Word of God, stood before them that day. And for them, all it was was almost. Tables will be turned someday. 
They didn't know the value of the moment. To them all it was was Fantasia. It was just a big show. It was just entertainment. That's all. Come and entertainers, Paul. He said, Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost altogether such as I am except these bonds. He said, I wish you were standing right where I am. Because I'm a free man that's bound. You're an enthroned slave. I'm a chained free man. He said, I wish you were just like me, except I don't wish the chains on you. Isn't that interesting how Paul changed? At one time, he would chain the Christians and haul them off, throw them into prison and persecute them. And now as a believer, he's chained. He looks at those people and says, I wish you were just like me as far as a believer. But I don't wish the chains on you. I don't want you to be bound like I am. He's a changed man. And when he had thus spoken, the king rose up, and the governor, and Berenike, and they that sat with them. And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. He could have been set free right there. But he appealed to Caesar, and it was God's will. It was God's will because God had already told him you're going to Rome. You're going to stand before Caesar. You're going to stand before Nero and you're going to preach. You're going to witness the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll see it next week. As far as Agrippa and Fezes were concerned, he could have been set free right there. They had, that was their conclusion. That was their decision. He was innocent. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, this man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. I tell you today that Paul did not miss the will of God when he appealed to Caesar. It was God's will for him to go. You know why? Because of the Gospel. He said in his epistles, a defense of the gospel. He will go to Rome, and we'll see it, Lord willing, next week. He'll go to Rome for the defense of the gospel. Because if they give him the okay to preach this message, the gospel of Jesus Christ in Rome, from that day forward, the church will be free to preach this message. So Paul, as a representative of the church, is going to go to the highest court of the land, stand before Nero. So Nero will pass the judgment. It's okay for this message to be preached. And he'll give the whole church freedom to preach the gospel. He did it for the gospel's sake, not because he had to. Let's stand. Father, I thank you today for your awesome word.